Toby Jones has finished his PhD at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where he is also teaching. His work focuses on the eruption of the Mongols onto the larger world scene, focusing on their invasion of the Persianate world. The topic of his research is loyalty in the Turco-Mongol world. Through this topic, he considers the Mongol invasions and their impact on the cultures around them. Mr. Jones, welcome to Eurotrash. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm super duper excited about this conversation. I can't tell you. Um, now, um, if we disregard the 20th century, the Mongols, at least in the Western kind of collective consciousness, represented the ultimate historical boogeyman, don't they? And I want us to kind of probe into that image and see if it's merited. But before we go into all that, we've got to clear up uh, a common misconception. When I wrote to you with a list of proposed themes I'd like us to cover during this uh, episode, I, of course, mentioned Genghis Khan, which apparently is not how we say his name at all. So why don't we start there? <laughs> yes. So, uh, in fact, his name is Chinggis Khan. Um, and Chinggis Khan. Yes, so uh, not in, I'm not exactly sure what happened. I think uh, it was the <laughs> French, basically some French historians. Oh, it's in, always um, the French historians. Yeah, in in the 18th century or something, uh, it was then adapted into English incorrectly, and it just stayed that way. So it's quite strange, actually. Um, but yeah, the original in in all original uh, source languages, he he is Chinggis or sometimes Jingis, but yeah, the the ch j is quite close. So okay, yeah, that's correct. But if we like, if we open up the Wikipedia page on yeah. Genghis Khan, yeah. um, do we pronounce Genghis Khan even though it's written like Genghis Khan? Or no, 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 it's it's not written. It should not be written that way either. Ah, okay, written, I see. Yeah, so, so it's already right. spelled completely like wrong. Incorrect. Yeah, yeah. All right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> this is the first thing I yeah. tell my students when they still get it wrong. But even at the end of the semester, I've told them four times. It, it, you, if you write Genghis in your final paper, I'll definitely take a mark off. You're out. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, <laughs> not out, but, you know, I'll, okay. I'll be disappointed, let's say that. <laughs> okay. How much does it hurt when, at the end of the semester, people are still it like... It hurts. It Gen hurts. Okay. Yeah, you've said it 20, 26 times per, <laughs> per lesson, and you're still getting it. So, yeah, it hurts a little bit. <laughs> um, to be honest, I'm from Slovenia. And we, in Slovenian, we say Genghis Khan. There you go. See, you guys, if you didn't, it, it's English that ruined it, to be honest, because as soon as they switched it over, even in German, there's a famous, uh, amazing pop song called Genghis Khan. I love I that know. song. Yeah, exactly. I, so they I love got in it Berlin right and I play it yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, got it, <laughs> they got it right too. So it's really only English that got it wrong. Okay. Uh, well, there you have it. Okay. Let's start at the beginning. Not at the complete beginning, but... Um, Maybe before Genghis Khan appears on the world stage. In what state were the Mongols before that? Well, um, so essentially uh, on, let's say, the area, in the area where we, we call the Mongol steppe. So this would include much of modern uh, Mongolia, the, the modern nation state, but also uh, parts of uh, different uh, nations like uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, etc., and you have a lot of different people groups uh, who live on this steppe. And most of them are either uh, Mongolic speakers, so speakers of a Mongolian type language, or Turkic speakers. Um, and this is why I regularly refer to the Turco-Mongol world or um, the Turco-Mongols, because really um, that the Mongol Empire was made up largely of Turks also. Um, and so the Mongols were simply one people group within 
a, a large number of people groups who populated that uh, Mongolian steppe. Um, so uh, before they had had Khans uh, in, in the past, but mostly quite, you know, more regional powers. Um, and uh, at some stage, they, uh, of course, were more powerful. And what essentially happened was that the, uh, the government of North China, the Jin uh, uh, dynasty, they basically enjoyed uh, or enjoyed, they, they manipulated these different people groups against each other oh. to, try and, to try and make sure that they... Um, they never invade sort of, China. Exactly. Okay. And uh, there was always that risk. And of course, raiding was very common. Um, raiding for supplies, uh, for trade, that sort of thing. Uh, and so the Jin were very aware of that. And as soon as one group became quite powerful, they would then support another group to sort of take them down. Um, wow, so an actual, that's, so, uh, yeah. that's, some that's some Game of Thrones diplomacy. Exactly, for exactly. So actually, um, the, the, the sort of power that was around before the Mongols, one of the, the bigger ones was the Tatars. Um, and the, the Qin at some point had supported them, and then they became too powerful. And it was with uh, their rise that um, the Jin supported, began to support the Mongols instead to sort of bring them down. And the Tatars had also been responsible for uh, the deaths of several of uh, Chinggis's ancestors. And so, uh, yeah, there was this sort of blood feud between the two people groups. Um, but bizarrely, because they were sort of well known before the Mongols came around, uh, bizarrely, they uh, when the Mongols began taking over the world, everyone called them Tatars or Tartars, which is the other name, which is very common. Um, so, and that was linked also in the European mindset to Tartarus, so the the hell of the classical world. So the Mongols are supposed to have come from hell. So the link was easily made. Well, badass. Um, yeah. yeah, so the Mongols are regularly called Tatars, and you'll still see this. I mean, there's still, of course, a, a an, an autonomous region of Russia called Tatarstan. Yeah. So there, it's still the name is still powerful, um, even though they, you know, they called themselves Mongols. But what they weren't one people, the Tatars and the Mongols. No, they both spoke a Mongolian language. Okay. Um, but they were, yeah, rivals, um, enemies up until uh, basically Chinggis's conquest. Um, when he wiped out the royal family um, and then took in the, the people that they had ruled. Okay, so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. That's this okay. is going to be all over the place because I want to cover yeah. so much things. But <laughs> so when eventually the Mongols invade China, they have a little bit of a reason to do that because, as you've told me now, the Jin kept them in a state of disunity for a very long time. So yeah. And they were also, uh, the Jin were responsible for um, killing, um, basically with uh, using the Tatars to kill some of the uh, previous Mongol Khans. Um, and so uh, uh, one of the previous Mongol Khans called Ambagai uh, was uh, nailed to a wooden donkey uh, by the Jin, for example. Um, so there was a, a, a um, yeah, a lingering sort of resentment, not just of the Tatars, but also their sort of backers, the, the Jin. And so, yeah, there's, this was the sort of uh, casus belli for the Mongols mm -hmm. to attack the Jin dynasty uh, in, in nor northern China. So, like, kind of like an insult that lingers. And yes, in exactly. Yeah. But why did they yeah. nail him to a donkey? That's so oddly specific. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a type of punishment that existed at that time. I, I don't really understand it myself, and I don't think we've ever seen any sort of, um, yeah, there's, there's no archaeological evidence for this wooden donkey. But I guess it's sort of... 
somewhat similar to a crucifixion, um, I would assume. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's it's not exactly clear what that really means. <laughs> it just it was very insulting. In yeah, and the humiliation, I guess, is yeah. key. Okay, yeah. and then how do the Mongols or the Mongol Turkic were they tribes or clans or proto states? How do we? So call I, them? as you as you may have noticed, I stay away from those words, the tribes and clans. Um, and that's it's actually a um, yeah a point of of hot debate um, still uh, in the study of let's say nomadic peoples, uh, and this has a lot to do with issues surrounding orientalism. Yeah. Right. So if you take, for example, um, a, a a Mongol leader, you'll often be get be called a chief, for example, or um, not like a king. Or, yeah. Okay. Uh, even though he may rule a population which is far greater than any European state. Yeah. Uh, they are called kings. Uh, also, things like when uh, we have sources written in Latin about the Mongols, and they will use the word dux, which became duke in English. And when it's translated into English, when it's referring to a European um, power, it's called duke. <laughs> and when it's referring to a Mongol, it's called chief. So the translation of these terms, um, the terms don't really exist in the languages that we're talking about. I mean, um, yeah, Mongolian... And other languages basically don't use equivalents of clan or tribe that we could easily nail down. Um, they're much more likely to use other terms that could be more better translated, perhaps as state or people. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I stay away from those terms. Some, some, many Mongol scholars are fine with them, yeah. but I do think that it, it, it uh, yeah, it, it changes the way we think about. Um, of course, because chief then implies that this society is not as sophisticated as a exactly. society that has exactly. a, a and, king. And I mean, exactly, or, and the Mongols were, you know, one of the greatest empire builders uh, ever. And so to sort of use this appellation really sort of, yeah, devalues a lot of the impressive things that they have done. Um, but also, you know, it, it, it still is important in the world today, the way we think about people from, let's say, nomadic populations that we are not accustomed to, and yet we, you know, we make these decisions about who they are based on the language that we use. And it conveys, like you said, this, you know, this sort of less lesser civilization or something like that. And that's really, yeah, that's really dangerous. Mm. So I, I try and stay away from that. And um, there are many people who, who do that as well. But yeah, I mean, it's also, it's, it seems to be a little less powerful when you're talking about of course, the 13th century. Uh, so, that's yeah, really that's something point. that could could be discussed more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent point. Um, so, how do the Mongols get united from this state of warring, of war, and uh, of fighting mm. each other that's being encouraged by the Jin? Many different sort of yeah aspects. Of course, Chinggis Khan himself, um, the sort of great unifier. Um, if we're talking about so-called great man history, so this idea that one that one man or one woman could sort of unite um, the nation and basically decide, it's very difficult to ignore that with Chinggis because uh, he he does you know take what are very many different people groups who seem to be largely at war and unite them. Um, but he has, of course, he has help. So there is another dynasty um, to the south of the Mongols called the Kerait dynasty. And these were a, a Turkic-speaking people, and they were extremely powerful. Uh, and their ruler, uh, who was given a Chinese title Wang, 
which became Ong, uh, Ong Khan. Um, he was extremely, uh, yeah, sort of the biggest power on the steppe at that time. And he had made a blood brotherhood with uh, Chinggis's father. Um, Chinggis, by the way, Chinggis is his title. His actual name is, was uh, Temujin. Mm-hmm. So as before he got the, the title Chinggis, uh, Temujin basically went to his, uh, once his father was uh, killed again by the Tatars who poisoned his father when uh, Temujin was only eight years old or so, uh, he went to his, uh, his, fa- his father's blood brother for support. And it was this Ong Khan who helped him to sort of grow to a, to a much po- more powerful uh, ruler. And then also the Jin began to help him <laughs> as well against the Tatars. Because and the then, Tatars grew too strong. Exactly. And so they, there was this unity between the Kerait and the Mongols against the Tatars. So then they sort of destroy the Tatars, defeat them. Uh, and uh, then the sort of two bigger power groups on the steppe become the Mongols and the Kerait, at that time allied. But of course, Chinggis uh, finds a way to, um, to, to turn this into a rivalry and then uh, yeah, defeats the Ong Khan and then takes in the sort of Kerait uh, step uh, state apparatus into his own. And that's when you really see the beginnings of the Mongol state emerging. Um, so this is when they pick up, for example, um, uh, writing uh, at that stage and things like that. So, yeah, at that moment, uh, then they become uh, sort of the, the ultimate power on the step. And they've managed to subdue either through uh, marriage or through conquest. Uh, most of the uh, steppe peoples, well, Mongolian steppe peoples. Um, so the Mongols didn't just conquer. They also used marriage as a way of, of getting other uh, people groups to join them. Uh, and these were powerful groups like the Kongirat or the Oirats. Uh, and they their support through these marriage uh, alliances was absolutely vital in um, uh, Timujun becoming Chinggis Khan. And what were some of the reasons that uh Genghis Khan was such a successful unifier. Yeah, uh, the the reasons given in the sources are regularly things. Uh, so this is something that I deal with: uh, the idea of loyalty. And right, loyalty is a sort of two way thing that you 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 don't earn loyalty by being a terrible ruler. You earn loyalty by being generous, by uh, taking care you know, of your people. Exactly. So he was noted as being extremely generous to his followers. Um, to giving them a much larger share of the, the booty that they captured in war than their previous uh, rulers had done so. And so this was one, one thing that seems to be regularly noted. Of course, we can't discount the fact that the sources are now coming from the, Mo- the, the, the Mongol Empire. So they're sort of, it's in their interest to show him as this great ruler. Luck, of course, is key. He, he seems to be extremely lucky. Uh, many, many times. And even when he's been defeated and has very few followers, he manages to bounce back. Um, and also, he uh, basically, one of the important things that about the Mongol uh, army was the, the restructuring uh, of, of the army. So uh, much like other uh, previous uh, steppe empires which had existed, they used a decimal organization for the army. So you have units of 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000. And so you're then sort of tied into your smaller units. So um, punishment, for example, if any number, any one of the unit of 10 fled the battlefield, all 10 would be punished. 
So there's this sort of group unity that was provided by this. Mm -hmm. And what uh, what Timujin did as well was to move people who had uh, fought against him. He didn't keep them in their same um, their same sort of unit. So he spread them out. So he sort of breaks down somewhat the um, yeah the maybe cultural uh, affiliation by spreading them out into different units. Um, those who joined him voluntarily, uh, they were allowed to keep their sort of cultural uh, affiliation. So you had a, um, several uh, units of Oirats, for example. They were all together because they had joined Temujin willingly. So also the ability to show that if you join me voluntarily, willingly, without making me have to fight for it, you'll get great reward um, and okay. you'll be at the top of the sort of, let's say, the, the gravy train when things start flowing towards us. And uh, when the, uh, if, you, if you fight back against us, we will absolutely not show you any mercy. And this was a policy that was held not just by Timujin, but by all of his descendants. So this is a very common psychological warfare uh, that they used, which was basically, if you fight back, we will annihilate you or, or annihilate your royal family that sort of thing. Uh, and then it's supposed to encourage the next, um, let's say, the next people group or the next city to, uh, to, to, to go easily uh, and to, to submit. Um, I wanted to ask um, about, what was it? There were so many things that you said that I wanted to be like, oh, oh, oh I want to ask about this. I want to ask, <laughs> yeah, ask about this. But yeah, how, what about meritocracy in his army? Was it true that he kind of leaned more into meritocracy more than like noble birth, for example, when it came to commanders in his army? Well, so the, I, yeah, the, the thing is that there is definitely, yeah, that, that's again a, a, a hot topic also because okay. he does, in, for example, mostly with the people, the people groups who submit to him willingly, their uh, elites are kept totally in charge. So they're, they're, not, they're not kicked out of their positions. Basically, there is a hierarchy. If you follow that, then it's, it's all fine. But there was a meritocracy when it came to people, um, let's say, perhaps of lower birth who, who did particular service towards him. He would grant them a sort of a higher position. Um, but yeah, there, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult sometimes mm -hmm. because of the, the language that is used to know exactly if that person was, um, you know, really low in, in, in position or not. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. If you did great service to, to, to Chinggis Khan, you, you would be promoted. And then there was also certain, let's say, um, positions that were given to you, which were not, let's say, to make you a noble, but to make you um, sort of stand out. So there was a position called the uh, Tarhan position. And this was a, a sort of hereditary, um, yeah, award for, for loyalty. And this would allow you to commit up to nine offenses against the Khan without being punished. Um, uh, but then also things like uh, tax exemption, um, and that also that carried on to your descendants. Hmm. So you'll, you'll see in later sort of generations that you, these uh, people will still have this title, Tarhan, um, and that really shows that they, you know, how honored they were by this sort of, uh, yeah, this, uh, this prize essentially. And so, yeah, there were, there was, um, yeah, there, there was still a very in, uh, important hierarchy, however, and things like um, one of uh, Timogen's young um, 
friends was called Jamuka, and they had sworn this blood brotherhood uh, similar to the way his father had done. Um, and then uh, they became rivals. Yeah, and I think I saw the movie. About yes, yes. So yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they became enemies, and later uh, Jamuka, of course, uh, fights against Imogen. Yeah, um, and uh, he repeat, repeatedly they, they clash. Anyway, uh, and then at some point, some of uh, Jamuka's men uh, betray him and bring him to Timujin. Uh, and he uh, immediately has them all killed for betraying uh, their rightful lord. So this idea, nice. he doesn't want to break down hierarchies. He doesn't want to um, sort of, yeah, there's no communist or, you know, he's not trying to, to make everyone equal. He's certainly trying to keep those hierarchies with him at the top. Uh, because if those hierarchies break down, then that also undermines the sort of his own rule. So yeah, there is a certain uh, social mobility that is possible, uh, but it's limited. And then what happened to his best friend? Oh, he kills him, obviously. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> no, so the, so the the trope, the story that uh, appears in the uh, anonymous secret history of the Mongols, which is the only uh, Mongolian language source um, sort of chronicle we have for that period, is that Jamuka uh, acknowledges his own guilt and begs for Timujin to take his life because he has failed uh, as his uh, his blood brother. Okay, so, so it's yeah, like there's, a, there's all an honor you know, kind of honorable. Yeah, yeah. Way I, to I doubt it happened that way, but that's yeah. uh, that's the story okay. anyway. It's my story though. Yeah. Uh, what about that story that another group kidnapped Chinggis's wife, right? Indeed. And then yes. she was in captivity for a while, and then she had a son. Yes. And and then there was some disputes about leadership because people alleged that it wasn't really Chinggis's son. But that that, that yes. I guess happened pretty early when he wasn't Chinggis Khan yet. Right? Yeah, so um yeah, he 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 did he he got married very early. Um so uh yeah, his father apparently found him his wife. So uh his father died when he was either 8 or 13 according to the sources. So he would have gotten married uh, quite young. And so his uh, eldest son uh, was called Jochi. Uh, and uh, his 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 descendants eventually created the Jochid Ulus, or the Golden Horde, which ruled over much of what is modern-day uh, Russia. Um, so uh, Jochi, yes, um, his mother was called Borte. This was Chinggis' uh, very loyal wife by whom he had his four uh, very powerful sons. And she was captured by another group called the Merkit. And this was, in the sources, there are different sort of explanations as to at what point this happened, because that's, of course, key. Of course. Um, and, uh, yeah, then he... Uh, but the story is that, that, uh, that she gave birth after being captured by them. And then uh, when they defeated the Merkit and took her back, Jochi was... Uh, there and so he was welcomed with open arms that's one thing that's never really been in question is that chingis no matter what the situation may have been chingis welcomed jochi with accepted him as his own yeah he gave him all sorts of power um yeah gave him pride of place in almost every way however the fact that he didn't become the the successor well he died before chingis that also didn't help, but um, uh, the fact that he wasn't, um, yeah, that he may not have been a potential successor seen by the, the, the Mongol elites may have been because of this uh, bastardy. 
Okay. And uh, one of the stories is that uh, when the Chinggis uh, called his sons together to discuss who would be the successor, his second son, Chagatai, um, claimed that why, why should we be ruled by this bastard of the market? Um, and so there's uh, he, of course, as the eldest legitimate son, could have maybe assumed that he would rule. So the fact that he sort of called this out um, and they seem to have had quite a rivalry, uh, the two of them. And in the end, uh, they sort of went for a, a third option in order to not uh, displease the, the other two, which was uh, Chinggis's third son, Ogede. And how did, uh, you said that Chochi died before Chinggis. Yes. Was yeah. there any foul play there? Uh, well, again, it's, it's um, he, he seems to have been uh, ill. There was some... Uh, there are some sources that claim that he was uh, poisoned, but that seems to happen with every single Mongol, <laughs> Mongol prince or Khan. Uh, there's always uh, they, they also they didn't seem to have led the most healthy lifestyles, and so the fact that they died at mostly young ages is is not all that surprising. They drank, uh, yeah, to excess on a regular basis, and so uh, yeah, there many of them um, basically seem to have died of. Yeah, alcoholism, alcohol poisoning. Um, oh, wow, I didn't know they were such party animals, to be honest. Indeed. What yeah. were so, they I drinking? Mean, uh, so that is, uh, yeah, something I don't think I could ever stomach, uh, which is called kumis. And that is uh, fermented mare's milk. Uh, and fermented so, mare's milk. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, horse, horse milk that's been fermented. Ooh, yeah. And so it's essentially, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried, you know, a Turkish drink like Iran or... Yeah, of course, um, I have. Yeah, yeah, so it's a sort of salty, somewhat salty, uh, yeah, alcoholic milk. And <laughs> okay. so, yeah, for me, absolutely not. But they, they absolutely loved it. And, of course, it also has to do with what you can get hold of uh, in a nomadic society, right? You don't have... Um, yeah, they didn't really have many... Uh, they, they can't grow rice or grapes. So, you know, the alcohol that they can get hold of is usually, you know, based on milk. And so that's, it, it makes sense that that's what they would drink. Uh, and yeah, then when they sort of conquered the uh, more sedentary lands with rice wine in China, for example, or grape wine, they became obsessed with that too. So yeah, they didn't, they weren't that picky in the end. Okay. Well, yeah, they were so drinking like after a victory or were they just like kind of, sipping it kind of on the regular well i don't know about sipping it on the regular but there's <laughs> there's there's certainly um so basically uh one of the most important um state functions but also societal functions uh was called the kudotai and this is the sort of um the the coming together of of uh mongol elites and it's the big party of of yeah, events. but it also formed, it's, it's a party, but also uh, the court, uh, the uh, parliament, um, the marriage hall, you know, this is where all the important things uh, in, in Mongol, the Mongol Empire take place. And it's attended by pretty much all the elites, men and women, um, and often would go for months. Um, and drinking was part of it, feasting was part of it the whole time. So it really is the this sort of non-stop uh, thing and it happens twice a year sometimes more and so yeah this is definitely a key part of of mongol life um and of course it's it's state functions were incredibly important but i think also this social function of you know sort of in a sense trying to keep the family together despite these big distances that they began to be separated by 
So a lot of meat and a lot of alcohol at these occasions. Indeed. So I mean, that's that's the that's the uh, yeah. When you count, count me grow, in, sounds, yeah. Sounds well, like a bash, I don't know. Right? I don't know about that. If you if you read some of the uh, if you read some of the European accounts of uh, the travel that they did across the Russian steppe, uh, there's a lot of meats that we wouldn't necessarily enjoy ourselves, like squirrel and things like that. So. Yeah, they, they weren't too picky. They basically uh, ate whatever they could get hold of or hunt. Um, so, of course, the hunt is another huge part of not just Mongol society. Many, um, many pre-modern societies uh, use the hunt as sort of this, um, yeah, sort of status symbol, but also um, practice for troops and things like that. And so the Mongol hunt was, you know, uh, an absolutely massive affair. And they would create this ring of troops and this ring would literally close from several days away and force all the animals into a giant circle. And then they would just, yeah, sort of uh, yeah, shoot. It's not doesn't seem like the most glorious type of hunting, but... Uh, Seems was, smart, though. It's extremely effective. And, of, of course, it's practice for uh, their military uh, campaigns, which they did similar things. So, yeah, it's it's all part of this uh, important yeah social cohesion oh, gosh, thing. This is so cool. Like, I, yeah. I wish we could just dedicate the whole hour to Mongol <laughs> feasting, you know? It's uh, just like an endless stream of questions that are going through yeah. my head right now. But, yeah. okay, let's get back on track a little bit. I'm sorry. Sure. I, I just keep, like, poking at everything. No, it's fine. I, I, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> okay. Um, so once the Mongols get unified and start conquering these like other empires especially because we have some really sophisticated societies like in china and then we have the sultanates so i have a couple of questions number one is what was their ideology that was that they used to justify uh kind of expanding and conquering uh, other people did they even need one or was that just like a fact of the times and the, the 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 world that they were living or did they have like a special mission that was fueling all that well so yeah there's there's uh, yeah i think at the beginning there's definitely a um so if you look at the original conquest the first conquests uh yeah they're against the jinn so you have this sort of revenge thing and there always does seem to be at least a a yeah a claim for a cause so that would be one um an another very major one was harboring timujin's enemies so, mm -hmm. of course, many of the people groups on the steppe fled when they started to realize how, how powerful that Timujin had become. And so uh, people groups like the Kipchaks or um, the Naaman, uh, they fled to their leaders and uh, many of their, their soldiers fled to other states. And so the accepting of these refugees was used by Timujin as a reason to attack. So after a certain point, he would say, well, you harbored my enemies and, uh, yeah, I, 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 I want to defeat them. I want to, and this is part of this ideology that at first seems to have been in the secret history of the Mongols. He claimed to want to rule all the people of the felt walled tents. So essentially all the people who share that nomadic lifestyle of the steppe. However, eventually this comes to be something bigger and either under his son, Ogede, or before, there seems to be this sort of, uh, yeah, development of a more universalist ideology that uh, we're, we're sort of destined by heaven uh, to conquer the world. And a lot of the, um, let's say, the letters that are exchanged with uh, different rulers like the Pope, 
for example, um, they have this sort of formula is by the by the will of heaven, uh, and essentially it's, it's somewhat a Chinese concept, right? This mandate of heaven. Uh, I'm sorry, was, the Mongols uh, exchanged letters with the Pope. Indeed, yeah. Oh wow, yeah, um, that's just yeah. blows my mind right there. Yeah, so at some point, uh, when when the Mongols uh, moved into, uh, well, first they were chasing the Kipchak through the Russian steppes. And the Kipchaks uh, kind of... Kept uh, going west, indeed. Kept going west and came to Hungary or Poland or something, right? Yeah, they took refuge first with the the Rus princes. So Russia is not a country at that time. It's just a, a sort of sequence of principalities. They took refuge with them. The Mongols chased them there took over uh, the Rus, uh, the, the regions of the Rus. Then they fled uh, even further, all the way to Hungary, uh, where the king accepted that Bela IV accepted them. And then this was used by the Mongols as a reason to then attack Hungary. Um, and so uh, after that, when the Western Europe sort of, sort of suddenly realized what was happening, uh, there was this sort of frantic scramble for information. Um, and that's when uh, the Pope sent um, certain, um, yeah, it's uh, someone, I read a book recently that called him the most unlikely James Bond ever, who was a, a very <laughs> overweight priest, um, was sent uh, to to visit the Mongols. And uh, yeah, his name was John of Plano Carpini, a Franciscan monk. And uh, he was sent uh, to to find out what he could about the Mongols. So he went in the 1240s. Uh, and went uh, all the way uh, to uh, Mongolia and delivered uh, the letters from the Pope to the the Khan at the time, uh, Guyuk, and then uh, went back, all the way back with with his responses. And then in the 1250s, another uh, monk uh, from from Flanders, uh, William of Rubruck, went as well. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's sort of... um, yeah, there, there's a sort of demand for information as they're as they're going out to try and find what 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 has just happened. Um, and uh, yeah, so you have a lot of interesting accounts from these European uh, sources as well. Um, and they sort of bumbling their way through uh, Asia um, and uh, committing all sorts of faux pas, uh, not knowing things. And yeah, <laughs> can uh, you? I'm sorry, but this just sounds incredible yet again. That uh, that this fat Dominican friar was like the agent who was like an intelligent agent who was collecting, yeah. who was going slowly towards the Mongols and like yeah. collecting Drunk, information, drunkenly making his way, drunkenly making east. and ma- making all sorts of faux pas. What kind of faux pas was he making, for example? Uh, you know yeah, anything? I mean, it's it's just yeah, obviously confusing people groups and and things like that. And there's a, there's a um, yeah sort of Mongol um, taboo about stepping on the threshold of the tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was so he, he does that, of course. And there's all these things that, yeah, it's it's yeah. They're, they're, both of them seem to have um, struggled with yeah the expectations, and so they didn't really realize that. Also, what's part of yeah, well, many societies, but gift giving is really important. So in order to sort of get things to happen, you have to give a gift, and they as what what do you expect from sort of Franciscans and Dominicans? They're poor, right? They're not supposed to be, you know, sort of well, 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 uh, yeah, loaded with gifts and things. So they ended up having to give a lot of the sort of, yeah, the Bibles they had, things like that in order to to move on. But then they were left with very little. Um, 
And yeah, they really struggled. And you can see that in their writings that they really are trying to explain for future travelers, <laughs> make sure you have a lot of things to give because otherwise you won't get anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, th th this was, you know, uh, later, later travelers did realize this and then they knew what they had to do. But uh, these early ones, it was, a, it was quite a struggle for them. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they seem to have been able to offend no end as well. But I'm sorry, but I didn't realize that our conversation is going to be so amusing and full of these like really funny <laughs> anecdotes. I did, that literally sounds like somebody sent me on a diplomatic mission. Like, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, well, this is the, of course, when, you know, in this, in this situation where you don't, you don't know, um, yeah, you, you're, the world is not connected, right? So you know very little about, let's say, even the next, the next city over, the next village over. And when you're talking about the types of distances that they were, they were traveling, um, yeah, that they were really not aware. And this is actually one of the interesting things about this period is that Western Europe is quite unaware of the rest of the world. And when you look at it in comparison to the Mongols, I mean, they basically connect all of Eurasia and they have a, a very keen awareness of all these different people groups. And this is what's actually fascinating when we see it from this sort of Western civilized perspective is that they were far more aware of the sort of differences between people groups and things like that than, than, than the West was at the time. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating um, uh, moment when you see that the Mongols are connecting these societies. So societies that have not really had these connections before, like China and Iran or um, to, to an extent, but, but m to a much greater degree during the Mongol period. And, mm. and this is what, um, yeah, many, um, sort of uh, interesting books have been written about these sort of exchanges that happened between societies. Um, and there's also the idea that this is the sort of, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of world systems theory, um, no. but the idea that there's basically there are these separate world systems and they, um, before the sort of, they were connected in the pre-modern society, then at some point they connect up. And uh, so the original idea was that they connect up in around the 17th century. And then there was an author uh, who said, well, no, in the Mongol period, they actually all connect up in this period. So she has these seven sort of uh, geographical regions that become interconnected through trade uh, during the Mongol Empire because um, they essentially, famously, they created one of the uh, largest postal networks, or mm -hmm. if not the largest postal network ever, um, under the same rule. And this allowed for people to travel quite easily. Um, and they had these postal stations set up all the way along, even in the sort of, um, yeah, the bleak steppes of Russia, uh, they had these postal stations. And so this allowed um, people to travel uh, a lot more. And so this, of course, brought huge, huge amounts of uh, wealth to the Mongols as traders realized that they could go to all the way there and, and, and make a lot of money. Um, and the Mongols brought the wealth in and then uh, sent it out again, basically creating um, trading partnerships uh, with with different traders who went out and brought all sorts of interesting things back to them. So you really, I mean, they became incredibly wealthy, the Mongol elites. Uh, and of course, as you'd expect with the, the, the large empire that they created. Sorry, I went a little off topic there. No, no, no. All good. All good. <laughs> I'm going to bring you right back. So why okay. didn't the Mongols conquer Europe then? Prob were the Pope's letters actually effective? Probably not, right? No. So the, the Pope's basically, the the, um, the Mongols basically kept essentially demanding his submission. 
mm-hmm. um, and uh, they believed they. This is where they definitely had uh, Europe wrong. They believed that the Pope had actual power and okay. could could force the let's say the other kings of Europe to to submit. Um, and so they yeah, they constantly asked for that, and uh, of course never happened. But yeah, they did. Of course, they reached um, they reached uh, into uh, Croatia. Even yeah. um, they reached all the way to the Adriatic, um, and they. Uh, had defeated, of course, these uh, um, major European armies at uh, Lignitz and uh, at the Battle of Mohi in Hungary. And so they had no real reason to stop apart from the fact that Ogede, uh, the Khan at the time, died. And so they all had to go back for the, for the Kurultai to decide the next ruler. And so this is the most basic explanation of why. Um, there are other factors, of course, things like um, their their armies were largely of course um based on horses and so do you need step lands etc but they also conquered plenty of areas that they didn't couldn't use their you know um their 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 horse archers in so yeah it's it's not a convincing argument in my in my book um and that seems to be the most uh the most straightforward is the is the best one <laughs> but how come they didn't come back after the feasting and uh, choosing the new Khan, right? Or sorry, Genghis. Yeah. So I mean, there was a sort of uh, a bit of a lull period um, in in the that the fact that Guyuk, who succeeded Ogede, that the third Khan, only lived for a couple of years, uh, and then his wife uh, took over and she ruled for a couple of years as well. And so there's this bit of a lull in the 1240s, and then uh, basically what happens is there's a coup, and the 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 descendants of Ogede, who were, had been chosen to rule, are overthrown. And uh, Tolui, Chinggis's youngest son, his eldest son, Monke, becomes the next Khan. And he sort of changes the goals. So he's uh, the one who sends the two, I'd say the two biggest uh, invasion groups. And that one of those is to conquer the Song dynasty in southern China, China and the other uh, with his brother. Well, both of them are led by his brothers. The other goes west uh, under uh, his brother Hulegu to conquer in essence, the uh, the assassins, um, the Ismaili assassins mm-hmm. in yeah. Middle East, and the Caliphate of Baghdad, and so uh, these two things are the sort of big uh, projects. Of, so this is uh, the Mon- infamous Monke's siege name. of Baghdad, then. Yes, yeah, um, and Monka, in fact, dies before before either of them are, are completed, um, but those are uh, completed by uh, his uh, his brothers in the end. But by that point, the Mongol Empire is no longer a united entity. Okay. Um, so it, it dissolves in, in around 1259 when Munka dies. Okay, just going back to Europe, just one last yeah, time. Yeah, sure. I've heard a podcast uh, once, and I don't know if the guy was a historian. I don't think so. But he referenced some historians that allegedly say that Europe was kind of like a third-rate power at the time behind this flourishing Islamic uh, empire, as well as behind, of course, China. Um, and that its eventual kind of elevation to the status uh, of a for- first-rate power was possible only because the Mongols have single-handedly conquered and-, and shattered both of these powers. What do you what do you think of that theory? Is that does it make any sense? Or well, I mean, Europe is not a power. That's that's one thing. Okay. Um, Europe. I mean, Europe is incredibly divided at this point. Um, yeah. There's no, you know, the the even of course when. Europe becomes powerful. It's individual nations that become quite powerful, right? I mean, they're not doing it together. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is that you could say, yeah, the caliphate, for example, which is this great power in, in, in um, the Abbasid caliphate, which is ruled for 500 years or so. I mean, the Mongols destroyed that, but it was already a sort of, uh, yeah, a shadow of its former self. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, calling Europe a, a third rate, I would say Europe is about a sixth rate power at this point. I mean, you have, you have other, you have many yeah. other, uh, many other states. So of course, China is not one uh, state yeah. at this, this point. There's three states there. Um, in the Middle East, you have uh, yeah several states as well. Um, then the Mamluks appear in Egypt, and they're yeah. the the ones that the Europe. Um, so at some point, basically, what happens is that the the Mongols who went to uh, to uh, Iran and Iraq and Syria they create their own state called the Ilkhanate, and um, their big rivals are the Mamluks in Egypt, and so these are slave uh, soldiers. Uh, who started a dynasty in the mid-13th uh, century, and they were uh, big rivals. And then uh, the the Ilkhans begin to uh, try and get Europe to join them to attack the Mamluks. So they are aware, of course, of the previous Crusades, and they know that the that the Europeans, you know, have this sort of religious idea about. Uh-huh. So um, they have good attacking. intelligence. Yes. Um, so they they. It never works. It never pans out at all. Um, but yeah, there were these constant letters going back and forth to try and coordinate, excuse me, uh, to coordinate an attack on the Mamluk state. So yeah, this is when the period of where Europe and uh, and the Ilkhanate are sort of uh, trying to get together uh, to, to to gang up on their enemies, the the Mamluk, the Muslim Mamluks. Yeah. So I mean, I think there there is a um, yeah there is a book, a famous book. Um, uh, I've forgotten his name. He was one of my uh, professors at St. Andrews, uh, and it's the medieval making of Europe. And it's the idea that this that, that there is a period where Europe starts to sort of grow up a little bit because of uh, because of yeah less pressure from the East. But that's yeah I, I wouldn't say that's super accurate. But if, because of course the Ottoman Empire comes in, and the Ottomans are yeah the by far the most powerful um, yeah power in uh, in Europe. So yeah, that that doesn't really pan out in my book. Um, yeah, it's really the discovery of the new world and uh, the resources that that provided and the technology technological advances that happened later that really allow Europe, uh, European powers, to become what they were. Um, you could say that that uh, began with the, the the Mongols because things like uh, Christopher Columbus uh, had a copy of Marco Polo's book. Uh, when he went on his journey. So he was trying to find this mythical, uh, sort of mythical China that Marco Polo had described. So there is this sort of, yeah, there is a linking effect in a sense, but and the, the sort of Europe finds out about the wonders of the East in this period. So how rich the East is and how they're, all the European travelers who go to China, for example, are absolutely shocked by the size of the cities because they're, you know, they are not, they're used to tiny things in a sense. And uh, yeah, it's uh, one of the sort of yeah fallacies. It's you're thinking about London and Paris as these great cities, but in this period, they're you know, minuscule compared to what can be found in China. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an eye opening moment for Europe. That is absolutely true as they start finding out like, way more than they ever have about uh, the East 
uh, and a lot of their so even within the the let's say the travelogues that are written, there's this sort of development, and it becomes less and less fantastical. So there's a sort of trend in in Western Europe to write pure fantasy about things yeah. you don't know, right? So you have this sort of you know the idea the, the Greek idea of the the, the seven climes and the, the center, and then as you go out, more and more crazy things start happening, like the dog headed. The yeah. dog-headed people or the people of with course. a foot in the middle of their stomach and things like that. And so John of Plano Carpini, the first uh, European traveler to go to the Mongols, he still is writing about these dog-headed people um, living just that's beyond. The, that's the James Bond, the fat monk. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they're living just beyond where he's actually been. So, you know, he keeps pushing the boundaries, but they're still there. But what you see is that in the later and the, the, yeah, the later moments where later travelers are going, there's almost no fantasy or there's less and less fantasy, shall we say. There's still always a little bit. I mean, even Marco Polo has to throw in a few things. But um, yeah, they start developing real sort of experience about what these places were. And yes, that does lead to a very, um, yeah, a, a trend. You could say it led more, let's say, it could have influenced the Renaissance more uh, in the sense that, um, yeah, fashions, for example, from the East became popular in, in the West, uh, wearing tartary cloth, for example, or yeah, even the hats that women wear uh, apparently may have been uh, modeled on the, the Mongol women's hats. So there is this, it's basically what I was talking about, this greater in interconnectedness of Eurasia that happens at this point. And so there's a great deal more info that these people have. Okay. And that's maybe why yeah. there's, there's more sort of desire to explore yeah that quote-unquote theory that seemed like way too simplistic yeah i mean that this is the thing of course because the because the mongol empire is the, this you know massive thing that that takes place and you know is so let's say shocking to to certain uh, europeans um yeah that the, there is a tendency to want to you know what and then what did what happened you know and if, but of course historical processes are quite slow and uh, it doesn't always lead to immediate results let's say so yeah i mean you could say that that began but you know it doesn't take place for another several hundred years um so yeah it's something but yeah there's always there's always other aspects you can talk about too how did the mongols manage to conquer all of these vast um empires there were like different types of armies, you know, from Chinese dynasties uh, to sultanates, and then we have European armies. But the Mongols just conquer kind of seemingly at will all of them. It seems like in a video game when you're playing like a strategy video game and you just put like cheat codes in and then you can defeat anybody with taking no damage. It just seems like that. Why was that happening? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's you know... The, it, it's it's a fallacy to say the Mongols never never lost. For example, they lost. They did lose battles. Um, they did give up. Um, they were never able to defeat the Mamluks, for example. And this is partly to do with the fact that the Mamluks fought very similarly to them, uh, using horse archers, etc. So that they didn't really end up, you know, having the advantage um, against they, the 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 best. Let's say the um, Mongol troops uh, are the best for open combat. So on the steppe. So if you meet them in a sort of open area, it's, it's, yeah, it does seem like a cheat code because basically they don't, um, they just use overwhelming numbers of horse archers who, who charge in, shoot, shoot several times more over their back and then 
go back and then get new horses and do it all again. And this is pretty overwhelming for, you know, uh, yeah, slower forces like infantry or heavy, heavily um, armored cavalry. But then the most important thing is adaptability. So they, uh, they take on the forces of other uh, groups and use them uh, to attack areas that they are not used to uh, fighting in, for example. So they use um, Chinese naphtha throwers. They use those in Iran. Uh, they use Middle Eastern um, catapult makers to attack cities in China. Um, so there's this sort of constant, I mean, this goes for most successful uh, empires. The Romans did the same. As they so they integrate new, new technologies integrate, into their armies integrate, like super fast uh, and use adapt. them immediately. Okay. Yeah. And also, the, the let's say, the, the more cynical thing, which is to use those troops first. Um, so they would take a city um uh, enforce uh, the levy upon them, force them all to join the army, and then use those people from that city to take the next city down. And so they're the sort of arrow fodder um, going into the next city, and then the Mongol troops are are mostly preserved. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's you know many any number of things you can also argue about. Let's say the the dividedness of like I was mentioning the 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 Abbasid Caliphate is already sort of on its knees. The uh, yeah, Chinese states are not united. The, the Song Dynasty has been sort of in retreat from the Jin already. So you know, there's there's a sort of uh, perfect storm in a sense, also in that many of the states around them are not in particularly uh, good shape themselves. So there's a bit of that. But yeah, the Mongols, uh, I think their use of things like discipline and um, their the postal system, which allowed them to move so quickly uh, or for information to move so quickly really allows them a, a tactical advantage. And so it's all of these things combined. It's not, not really any one of these that seems to have uh, yeah, led to their success, but uh, it, it's really powerful when it all comes together. Was the Mongol reputation of utter, how should we call it, uh, ruthlessness, kind of justified or is it largely an, an invention? Like, for example... I was reading about the siege of Baghdad and the chroniclers of the time say that the rivers ran, the Tigris uh, ran red with blood. But at the same time, when the crusaders conquered Jerusalem, they also said, you know, they were walking through blood because they just killed everybody. Also, you just told me that the jinn, uh, they nailed a guy <laughs> to, the, to a donkey. So were the Mongols really so special in this regard or were people just surprised that they were so successful and then attributed this ruthlessness to them? kind of in, a, in retrospect. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I think it's a little both, let's say. Um, there's, there's, they're not, um, yeah, they're not stand out in that time period for, I mean, when one captures a city uh, in this period, it's expected that there is sort of, basically you decide on an amount of time that the forces that you've just, you know, relied on to take the city can loot and plunder and kill. And that is a sort of standard accepted. Every every state does that at that period. Is that there is this um, yeah this expectation of that. Um, the Mongols uh, are extremely ruthless, and they seem to have taken things a bit further than other states would do. So I mean, the sort of total annihilation of a place, for example, it doesn't seem that common. Um, but I think, yeah, particularly when it comes to a, a city like Baghdad, I mean, there's so much symbolism and so much, um, you know, religious weight 
about the the what has happened there, right? Is that these these chronicles are written from a Muslim perspective, and this is the destruction of you know the commander of the faithful and his glorious city, right? And and a lot of these sources are actually written by um, the the chroniclers from the Mamluk period, so the the big enemies of the Mongols. So they have, of course, they have a, a reason to want to to show how bad it is, um, and that also is a tendency as i mean you you can read in european chronicles but also in the middle east in in persian and arabic i mean you have you know this this idea of how to to make uh something sound impressive and that's you exaggerate and that doesn't matter they do that all the time i mean the numbers that persian chronicles for example talk about being killed by the mongols i mean are physically impossible uh at, in that period they told they say you know three million dead in the um, you know the the sack of some city in the Middle East, and you know it's not possible for that city to have had three million inhabitants at that time. So you know it, it, there are definitely tropes about you know uh, how it's basically just to show how absolutely devastating these attacks were. Um, and so yeah, that there is a sort of because the Mongols were so successful and took it to such to such extents and went further and further and further that, yeah, of course, the, the thing is that you have stories not just from one, um, you know, one group of people. It's from Armenian chronicles say the same, uh, European chronicles uh, about the sack of Kiev, for example, or uh, the Novgorod chronicle about some of the attacks on Rus cities, Chinese chronicles. They all say the same thing. Which is and, what? Which, which is that these are the, you know, the worst things to have ever happened to us as as people, you know, and so basically that, just killing everybody in the city. Yeah, but this is this is a thing, of course, is that when you look at it, if you see that, hang on, the city that they've just talked about as being, let's say, wiped out, seems to be their sort of base for the next, you know, thirty years. I mean, cities like Bukhara and Samarkand, which are some of the oldest sort of trade hubs of uh, the Silk Road, so to speak, um, they are they continue to be vitally important for the Mongols and they're their sort of biggest um, yeah, source of, of revenue. And so if they were completely destroyed, this couldn't, they, they couldn't be used as, you know, and you talk, see, talk about, you know, even later they'll say the same city was besieged and similar numbers of people were killed. And you're thinking, but if they were all killed 10 years before, that's not really possible, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's always a bit of uh, hyperbole. You can never... Uh, underestimate that. Um, but of course, the Mongols, I mean, we do have this information from all sorts of sources. So you can't ever say that they were, yeah, that they that they were not ruthless or that they didn't uh, destroy a lot. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's this sort of uh, the game that these chronicles are playing. Uh, and that's trying to show, um, yeah, the sort of the, the absolute devastation that took place. But taking them literally is much more difficult and you do have to be quite circumspect when you when you when you <laughs> look at the numbers or look at the the phrasing with the rivers red with blood and things like that so i mean we do have for the sack of baghdad for example we have sources written much later and sources written at the time by people involved and the people writing at the time who are involved say that they killed for, you know, three days or something like that. So they don't hide that fact. It's not, you know, but that is normal. Like I was saying earlier, it's, it's not, it was expected. A lot of the forces that were used to capture Baghdad were Christians, 
uh, and she is as well. So there's this sort of, yeah, this sort of resentment of the, the Sunni power that has been held over them for, for a long time. Some of the Georgian and Armenian chronicles, for example, are, are absolutely thrilled about the sack of Baghdad and they're, you know, very glad to be taking part. So, yeah, there is this sort of, yeah, there's, of course, you always have to think also about the, um, the bias of the, the authors who are trying to show one thing or another. Um, so, yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's a game that is always played by, by those chroniclers and one that we have to try and play as well. <laughs> Can we once and for all clarify the often quoted statistic that you find everywhere when you, I mean, at least in popular sources, that the Mongol conquest reduced the world's population by something about like 10% or something crazy like that? Where, is, where does this come from? Yeah, I mean, this comes from, I would say, the sources that I've just been mentioning. Um, And I don't, the problem is that you can't know. I mean, you can't know the numbers, really. And that's that's really does provide you with some difficulties because you can't ever say how many, you know. uh, Of course, what regularly happened was that the Mongols would conquer a city, kill those uh, who, you know, were, let's say, soldiers or had actively fought them, and then they would... um, take people away also that so they often took craftsmen and uh artisans they took them let's say back to mongolia or moved them to china and things like that so ogade was the first to build a city the first mongol ruler to build a city he built the capital of karakoram in the 1230s and he used of course a lot of the artisans and craftsmen that he had taken or the mongols had taken from their capture captures of northern china and of um, yeah, the, uh, much of the Middle East. And so, you know, yes, you could say that the, the cities also probably were, you know, changed quite a lot by that in the sense that maybe they wouldn't have been completely destroyed. But if you take away a lot of the, you know, important, um, yeah, the important members of that city, then there may be a sort of lull. Uh, and you do see that certain cities, for example, um, seem to have gone down quite drastically after the, the Mongol invasions. Um, so yeah, and then also one of the more interesting things, at least when it comes to the Middle East, and this is a much talked about thing, is the uh, the destruction of uh, irrigation canals. Um, so of course, much of the Middle East is not, you know, that um, uh, humid, not that wet. So you you make use of what are called kanats, so these underground irrigation canals, and uh, they really did help to um, you know keep the that area. Uh, fertilized and and irrigated. And the Mongols did destroy some of these intentionally. Uh, We do have information about that. But also, they, of course, killed many of the people who took care of them, and they need constant upkeep. So there is a belief among some that the Mongols irrevocably changed the sort of climate there or the the, because of the way that they acted. And without this sort of uh, constant protection of uh, this irrigation, then uh, it sort of fell apart. And we do have, um, let's say, uh, geographers who traveled in that area before the Mongols and who said it was very fertile, very green, and then geographers after who say, you know, it's been it's been destroyed and, and things like that. So, you know, it's hard to, yeah, it, they might not even have known what they were doing in some cases. Some cases they clearly did know and are trying to, you know, um, yeah, use this sort of psychological warfare to, to, to become successful. So yeah, I, I, that can never be known, but they certainly were extremely devastating. That's, yeah, 
That's without doubt. You mentioned that there was a, a woman ruling in between. I don't know which period exactly were we talking about after Genghis Khan, I think. What was the role of women in Mongol society and how socially mobile could they be? Especially so the, if we uh, compare them to like, I don't know, medieval Europe or... Yeah. So this is actually something that I'm um, planning to research a bit more uh, in the future. And uh, that's the, the social mobility aspect. But... Um, there's been more and more st studies about uh, Mongol women, uh, but yeah, there uh, were particularly uh, a few who became extremely powerful, and uh, this would be uh, one was called Toregene Khatun. So Khatun is the sort of equivalent to Khan. It's the female, um, yeah, the 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 elite woman. Chinggis Khatun. Uh, no, yeah, that doesn't exist, sadly. But oh, okay. it's, yeah, they they the their wives were given that title yeah. um, when they when they married. And so um, after Ogede's death, so in um, in 1242, his uh, wife, uh, Toregene, uh, ruled as the regent for five years. And then after uh, Guyuk, his wife did the same. And that also took place in some of the uh, successor states uh, of the Mongols. And so you had quite often there would be women who uh, ruled, let's say, on their own. But they were also a key part of uh, the Kurultai, as I was saying. This, this, I don't know why my computer is deciding to try and update everything now. Um, Great. But uh, no, so they were a key part of these, of these, you know, the meetings and discussions about policy, making policy, uh, conquest, all these sorts of things. And so they have a very uh, important role within the empire itself, and this is linked to the, their role in society. In that, in Mongol, uh, let's say nomadic society, they they have a very important role in maintaining the camps themselves, and so this is a common uh, thing that happened: is when the uh, the Khans went on campaign, is their wives would maintain the camps uh, while they were gone, and so they had this sort of yeah stand-in role in particular. That's the the key thing: is that you wouldn't really have gotten one to be chosen as uh, the ruler, but in this sort of stand-in role, they consistently uh, do that job. Um, and in later uh, societies, or later states, they, they, they continue to have this um, this role. And that's not just a Mongol thing. That's, that's much more common in both uh, Turkic and Mongol states, that women have a sort of a more, let's say, visible uh, power. Because, of course, women always, no matter the society, do influence power. But in other uh, regions, let's say in Europe or the Islamic world, a little bit more so, let's say, from, you know, from behind the scenes. Um, whereas in the Mongol world, in the Turkic world, it's, it's very, very uh, out there. And okay. this is quite shocking to many of the, the historians who are writing about that, of course, um, because they're not used to seeing women you know, take the, the main stage. And of course, this does lead to some very negative portrayals of them. And so, yeah, that's another game you have to sort of play with the sources is figuring out, you know, what of it is true and what of it is just simply, uh, yeah, misogynistic bias. Okay, uh, what, from but what were they saying, for example? You know, so Toregene was accused of, of um, you know, of basically getting rid of the ministers of her of her husband when she took power. And you think, okay, that's also the prerogative of a, of ruler, a ruler, right? Yeah. yeah. And so what if that is negative and what if that is just simply what was expected? Um, and so because this, the, a lot of the sources, most of the sources that we have are coming from societies um, in which women do not have this very forward role, 
this there tends to be a very negative portrayal of them. Um, so in the Seljuk uh, Sultanate, for example, there's a very famous vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, who wrote a book called the Siyasat Nameh, so the book of politics. And he has a whole chapter devoted to women should not be in politics because they ruin everything. And this is because, of course, his um, the, the Shah that he was, uh, or the, the ruler that he was working for, Malik Shah, his wife, Terkin Khatun, had a lot of power. And so you can sort of see why he's he's doing this. And this, this happens in the Mongol period as well, is that there's this sort of, yeah, this reaction against um, yeah, this, the female rule that happens. Um, and of the social mobility thing is, is, is a little bit, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one and one I'm sort of looking towards in the future. But yeah, it does happen as well. You do have uh, women who sort of start at a lower level getting to a higher level and becoming khatuns, becoming sort of wives of khans. But there is a, also a very important hierarchy among women too. And this is very key in Mongol societies. They're very aware of which woman is, the, for example, the chief wife. Um, that woman has the sort of power among, that, uh, among the women and she's the most prestigious, etc. So there's always this idea that one woman sort of stands above the rest. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, and one of the sort of weirdly negative things about, let's say negative, at least what we would think of as negative is the tradition of leveret marriage. And this is the fact that a, a man's wives would go to his son when he died. So the son would marry the wives of his father, apart from his own mother, um, uh, after his father died. And so that happened very regularly. And again, this is something which was quite, yeah, freaky, let's say, to the, to the, so, to the chroniclers who wrote about it. And they were a bit shocked by this. Could women also be warriors sometimes, or was that not very likely? Um, so there's, uh, they're less uh, used as warriors, as pretend warriors. So there is an idea that they were uh, put on horses, and because they, so the, their hats were quite tall, they looked like warriors, so at least one of the European chroniclers uh, says that um, from afar they all looked like warriors, and so because they dressed quite similarly otherwise, and so they were often used to sort of create a fake idea of Mongol strength. Um, but oh, like on a the decoy whole, or something. Yeah, yes. On the whole, they they were not warriors. No, um, there was a, there are a few exceptions, but it. it tends to be that they, um, yeah, they probably had no problem taking up arms if they needed to, but. Mm -hmm. Which cliches that we hold about the Mongols are inaccurate and should be dispelled? Or maybe which aspects of their society are often overlooked so we can keep talking about the, you know, Mongols as the boogeyman? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, we've already mentioned a few uh, for sure. I mean, the, 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 the destructiveness or the barbaric aspects, these are things that when you look at them in more detail, you end up fi figuring out that, okay, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that need to be explored more. And I think that's sort of part of it is just seeing, seeing the Mongols as this sort of, um, yeah, unstoppable force that just appears and disappears is, is, is really something that we should stop. Uh, thinking because, of course, the, the, say the, the United Empire does disappear quite quickly, but then you have these uh, these Khanates which continue to rule in different uh, parts of Eurasia, huge empires in and of themselves, um, and some of them last for centuries, you know, 
um, and their descendants are still uh, around. Um, I mean, I was mentioning Tatarstan, for example, and uh, other, you know, other parts of uh, Eurasia in which um, this is still a very important thing. And what essentially happens is after all of, even after all of these um, Chinggisid states, so, so states ruled by descendants of Chinggis Khan disappear, there's a great respect for um, the Chinggisid lineage and uh, people try and make sure that they are um, honoring that when they start their, their own sort of um, uh, conquests. So there's a later ruler, Timur, uh, you may have heard of uh, Tamerlane, he's known often in Europe, who conquered essentially much of the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, he sacked Delhi, just defeated the Ottomans, etc. He was not uh, a Chinggis, he was not descended from Chinggis. But in Didn't order he claim to... that he had some connection? Well, to that was done later by his, uh, by his descendants, but oh, he, right. uh, he uh, married into the Chinggis family, he married Chinggis princesses, and then he was able to take this sort of honorable title of Gürigen, son-in-law. Uh, and he used Chinggisid puppets uh, to sort of uh, legitimize his rule. And this happened quite often and among a number of states. And so, yeah, this sort of legacy of uh, the Mongols, but also uh, things like, yeah, like I was saying about the sort of interconnectedness is that there seems to have been more sort of uh, connections that, that continued to exist um, between different parts of the world after the Mongols. And so, yeah, the, the idea that they um, were this sort of barbarian invader um, and didn't have any lasting effect beyond that is one that should be very quickly dispelled because it's, they have a huge impact. I mean, you should expect it, right, with a, an empire that big. But um, some, some of the ways in which they had a really uh, huge impact are somewhat um, quite interesting and they they they're not always in ways that you would expect i mean uh, even in um countries like russia and china today um you know they they remember this heritage the mongol heritage is quite negative yeah. but also as a moment in which they sort of became unified so the mongols are sort of famed in china for uniting china even though uh they were not chinese themselves they actually brought all of what, almost all of what is modern day China together, and this had not been the case for 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 many I mean, ever really. Um, and in Russia, is the same. Is that even though the Mongols were extremely devastating in Russia, they ended up supporting um, the city of Muscovy and supporting the Orthodox Church. And these were the two sort of uh, basic, you know, uh, pillars of uh, the later Russian Empire. And so, yeah, there, there's a sort of um, yeah, a very interesting dynamic between uh, nation-state building and the Mongols, it, where they're often thought of in extremely negative terms, but they still manage to have this very uh, yeah, influential relationship um, that, that tends to show, uh, show itself in weird ways. And so, yeah, I think just, uh, yeah, sort of looking, trying to look at the Mongols less from a um, yeah, just a sort of shocking aspect and looking more into the details in order to understand this is some, somewhat what I do, understand what they gave, what they, you know, um, yeah, how the connections happened. Uh, even if you never ignore the fact that they were extremely violent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what, something I, I try to try not to do because it 
it is a, a trend nowadays to just talk about the good parts. Okay. Um, but I don't, I try not to do that. I, I wrote my master's thesis. Uh, it was called A Pox on the Pax because uh, the Pax Mongolica was something I found very interesting. This idea that, you know, like the Pax Romana, this idea that they sort of made everything better. But then you look into the sources and you see that even after they took over, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of negative things uh, that 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 happened because of their rule. So I never, I never. Okay, such as we, we just have to pry a little bit here because yeah, it's sure, part it's, of your research. Bit, yeah, I mean, it's it's something I looked at uh, before, but um, so I mean, the one of the big things that people like to talk about is the the importance of trade and how trade became so big in this period in a, a way that it had not been previously, and yet really that trade benefited the traders and the Mongol elites. And that's pretty much it. And if you look at the, for example, the postal network, which everyone talks about as this amazing thing, and it, and in a sense it is, the fact that the, the Mongols used the people uh, living in that area to, uh, to support that network, and that was a huge demand on them. And so in actual fact, the king of Armenia, uh, his name is Hetum, he, when he created a, um, a, tr- a treaty with the Mongols, uh, that was one of his um, sort of provisos that he didn't have to have the postal network in his lands, um, and so this was he didn't want it. He it's essentially because it was saying, such a burden no. on the state. Yeah. So and and we have other sources which talk about you know people fleeing the area around these postal networks because it was too much. I mean, basically the the people using them were were if it was all maybe well and good, you would say it would work fine. But of course, people abused those powers um, that they were given by the Mongols. And so, yeah, you do have a, some neg- a lot of negatives that if you, you know, just talk about the benefits of trade, you get a very sort of, yeah, modern capitalist sort of trickle down theory idea of how, how important it was. And I think really only by looking deeper into the sort of um, the nitty gritty of it, do you understand, okay, sometimes it could be good, but uh, it seems to have been bad a lot of the times. <laughs> Much or, like our current system. <laughs> oh yeah, applying a little bit of Marxist analysis yeah, to more yeah. society as well. Yeah, um, yeah, it's so much. We, we already spent. I took so much of your time. I'm, I'm sorry. It's like an hour and a <laughs> no, half. No, you don't already. have to apologize. I love talking. This about was so it, cool. I hope yeah. we did dispel some of this binary, you know, myths uh, with this conversation. And I'd love to have you back if I didn't tire you out too much. No. Not at all, not at all. Um, But before we say goodbye, you know, the tradition in this podcast is that I ask you something a little bit trashy at the end, since the title of this podcast is Euro Trash. So Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, as a Mongol warrior, could you be like cutesy sometimes? Could you put like flowers in your helmet? (laughs) Could you, you know, put, I don't know, like a pink garment on you? Or did you have to act macho all the time and be really tough? Do we know anything um, about that? Yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure. It's I've never seen anything about uh, uh, about Mongol dress ever uh, going to those those uh, interesting ways. Sadly, okay. um, but yeah, there's. I mean, they, they definitely had they definitely had a sense of humor. That's the uh, the key is that one of the um, the rulers Ogade. I told you that uh, he liked to he liked to drink, and um, there was uh, apparently this is. Probably an apocryphal story, but uh, one worth Let's sharing. Let's pretend none, it's true. Nonetheless, yeah. um, was told that uh, in order n- not to die early from alcoholism, he should reduce his uh, consumption to one cup of day, 
so he decided to make his cup uh, much, much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> a mega pint. Exactly, exactly. So I'm just envisioning a sort of thing like this. And you just, yeah, 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 like a meme. Yeah, um, exactly. exactly. Would, they, would they laugh at themselves or was like uh, saving face really important in that culture? Uh, I, I think or that, yeah, were they I mean, like roasting each other a little bit because I, I had a, I had a Viking historian yeah. um, on the podcast, uh, Professor Nordwick, a while back, yeah. and he said that it was possible in the Viking era in one context, and that was if you went straight to the king and you were roasting him in verses that were very uh, yeah. witty, then you could get oh, away yeah. with it and and also get a prize for that. But that was kind of yeah. the only context where that... Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the, um, there is a lot of... In the secret history, for example, there is a lot of... Um, there's a lot of poetry. And, of course, it's not a written culture. So, um, you know, there, we may not know how much was there. But there does seem to be a, a quite a... Um, yeah, somewhat complex... It, it, it Genuinely, you see their humor and it doesn't, doesn't seem to translate because you, it is being translated and it never makes sense. But there, do seem, there does seem to have been plenty of... Uh, yeah, of um, sort of, yeah, intense uh, sort of jousting when it comes to, uh, yeah, these these poems and such, um, criticizing the others. But yeah, it's hard to tell, sadly. Where can people follow your work? Um, do you have any social media profiles you'd like to share? Are you writing a book? Do you have any articles out there? Um, yeah, so I, uh, I, I'm sort of, uh, just because I've, I've finished my PhD, um, that I would hope would become a book uh, in, in the near future. Um, I have an article in the journal Iran, and that's about Mongol loyalty. Um, and that one is, is sort of a, yeah, quite a, a broad scope um, view of the sort of different objects of loyalty. So who should you be loyal to? Um, and yeah, I, uh, I um, yeah, I think maybe just uh, We'll hear more at a certain at a later date about uh, my my own work, but uh, for for the, for now, um, yeah, I think uh, just uh, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way for now. All right, um, cool, to- Toby Jones. But awesome. yeah, that's that's the key for now. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Thank welcome. you for your time. Yeah. Uh, this was absolutely amazing. I really <laughs> will force to have this conversation again. Maybe we can narrow it down a little bit more. Sure. I yeah, won't yeah, be yeah. so That's all over the place. A little easier as well. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. Thanks again. No problem.